Last year in April, the, uh, some of the elders and deacons of our church went to a conference down in Cincinnati called Catalyst. Now, Catalyst is a different kind of leadership conference. Uh, it's kind of similar to a TED conference. Anybody know what a TED conference is? You heard of TED Talks? Well, this is a, a Catalyst is a conference kind of like that. It's not where you go and you have a, an hour of speaking, and then you go to a couple workshops, and then you go back and have another session with the speaker, and then you go to more workshops. There's no workshops. Uh, it's all talks. And so for you hear a dozen speakers in a day just talking about aspects of church leadership. And it was a really good conference. We heard great speakers like Andy Stanley and Robert Madu, uh, Chris Hogan, uh, and uh, this lady, Margaret Feinberg. Uh, Margaret spoke about fighting back with joy. Uh, Peggy Mouch is, uh, runs our, our, our women's uh, Bible study on Wednesday mornings. And if you don't have a Bible study to go to, if you're available at 930 on Wednesday mornings, uh, ladies, I encourage you to check out Peggy's Bible study here at the church building, 930 on Wednesday mornings. And um, I want uh, to let you know that um, Margaret Feinberg was one of the best speakers that we heard at this conference. Uh, she is an author. Uh, one of the things that she does is she, she makes uh, grown-up coloring books based on Scripture. Uh, and so if you like to color, you probably may have checked out one of Margaret's coloring books, or if you're not, you haven't checked out one, if you like to color, uh, if you feel like a kindergartner, go ahead, color. Um, but uh, check out one of Margaret's coloring books. But she also wrote a book, wrote a book called Fight Back with Joy. And two weeks before her book was to be uh, published, she found out that she had breast cancer. She was in her 30s. And she went through chemotherapy and radiation and multiple surgeries. And she was writing a book about joy and having joy. And, and, and yet she was going through such a joyless time in her life. And she had to learn how to fight back with joy. And one of the things that she said in her talk, which, which has stuck with me for a year and a half, uh, for, for about a year now, um, is that she, in order to fight back with joy, she had to remain suspicious that God was up to something good. Let me say that one more time. She had to remain suspicious that God was up to something good. Now, when you think about that for a minute, when you go through something hard, when you're going through a tough time, like Margaret, when she was going through cancer, it's hard to be suspicious that God is up to something good. When you're going through a difficult time, when someone you love is diagnosed with cancer or another terminal illness, it's hard to remain suspicious that God is up to something good. When you hear that layoffs are coming from your job, it's hard to remain suspicious that God is up to something good. When finances are failing, or when someone's health is failing, or when someone is talking bad about you and gossiping about you, it is hard to remain suspicious that God is up to something good. When life is falling apart and you're going through the ringer, it is hard to remain suspicious that God is up to something good. When you feel abandoned or forsaken or you feel like all your friends and family have let you down and have left you, it is hard to remain suspicious that God is up to something good. But I believe that he is. And I believe that because of the story we're going to look at today. When Margaret was going through her battle with breast cancer, she thought of this story that we're going to look at today, the story of Joseph. Now, we started a, a new series uh, last week, or two weeks ago, called Your Story, His Glory. And uh, today we're going to look at Genesis chapters 39 through 50 um, as we talk about how God intended something for good 
when others intended it for harm and evil. Like I said, we started a new series here uh, a couple weeks ago called Your Story, His Glory. And it's all about how God can take the bad circumstances and situations in our lives and how he can turn them around and bring good out of them. Even when it seems like good cannot possibly come out of the situations that we're facing, even when it seems like good cannot possibly come out of the circumstances that we're in, whether they're of our own doing or someone else's doing, it may not seem like good can come out of it, but I believe that God is up to something good. I'm going to tell you why I believe that in just a little bit. But for right now, uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the story of Joseph. Now, when we started this series, we started by looking at a verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that's where we started this series a couple weeks ago. We talked about how God is able to take all things and work them out for the best possible good. And to be honest, we, we looked at this passage from Romans and saw that the very best possible good that can come out of our bad situations is that we would look more like Jesus. Because Romans 8.29 says that we are to be conformed to, we are being conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God is making us look more like Jesus. And he can take the bad situations in our lives and the bad circumstances in our lives and he can turn them around and work them in such a way that we will look more like Jesus Christ. And that's to me, is the goal of life, is to look more like Jesus. Now, you may wonder, well, what does that mean to look more like Jesus? Does it mean that I'm going to be sinless and perfect like he was? I don't think so. I don't think that's possible in this life. But when I think about looking more like Jesus is what I think of. I look more loving like Jesus, that I love people unconditionally the way that Jesus loved people. That's what it means to look like Jesus, is I want to I look more like Jesus in the way that I love people. I want to look more like Jesus in the way that I serve people. I want to look more like Jesus in the way that I serve. And I want to look more like Jesus in the way that I forgive. And so maybe God has to take some situations in my life that I look at as bad, and I, he's got to take some of the things in my life that are, are really rotten and awful and terrible. And yes, I have bad hair days. Anybody else? We all got them. And so we go through rotten situations and we go through terrible circumstances. And sometimes life just stinks, right? It does. But I believe that God is able to take those situations and those circumstances and turn them around for good. And the greatest good that can come out of that is that we'll look more like Jesus in the way that we endure, in the way that we, in the way that we uh, overcome temptation and sin, in the way that we uh, love other people and serve other people and forgive other people. We can look more like Jesus even through the hard times, and God will use those hard times to help us do just that. Last week we started looking at the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 and how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, that his brothers were insanely jealous of Joseph that Joseph was his father Jacob's favorite son. And so his favorite son, uh, in fact, he, he demonstrated how much he loved him by making him a richly ornamented robe or uh, the, uh, a coat of many colors, as you may have called it when you were growing up in Sunday school, uh, that God, uh, that jo Jacob made this coat for his son Joseph and his brothers were jealous of the fact that Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And not only that, his brothers planned to kill him. They, ha they hatched a plot to kill their brother. And uh, they were going to leave him for dead in, in a cistern. Uh, but then they, they realized that 
if they sold him into slavery, they could make some money off of the deal. They didn't care what happened to him after that. But so they went ahead and sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelites who are distant relatives of the Hebrews. Um, and uh, they, went, they uh, sold him into slavery. And we pick up with that story in Genesis 39. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis 39. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one out of the chair in front of you somewhere. Uh, it looks like this. It's on page 30 of this Bible uh, in the chair in front of you. Or you can use your favorite app on your smartphone or your tablet. Uh, if you, you want to use that, I recommend either version or Bible Gateway. They're both good apps to use. Uh, so we're in Genesis 39. And we're going to look at... 13 chapters, or 13, 12 chapters of Scripture this morning. And I know that sounds like a lot, and we're not going to read it all. We're going to paraphrase much of it. But I do want to look at a lot of it, in especially Genesis 39 and 40. So uh, grab your Bible, turn to Genesis 39. Let's look there at verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, just so you know, that phrase appears three different times in Genesis 39. We see three different times that God was with Joseph. And I'm sure that at some point, Joseph had to wonder if God was with him at all as he's being thrown in a cistern, as his brothers are hatching a plot to kill him, as he is being sold into slavery. He's got to start wondering, is God really with me? We, We see three times in Genesis 39 that indeed God was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that, and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph was trustworthy, and he was prosperous, and he was being blessed by God, and God was with him. Now things are going to change dramatically for Joseph, not because of anything he did, but because of what Potiphar's wife does. Uh, Look at uh, the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now Joseph was a young man of integrity. All right. Now he was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery, so he's not that much older than that. He's a, maybe a, an older teenager in his early 20s here in Potiphar's household, and he's got Potiphar's wife coming on to him, and yet he does the right thing. He lives with integrity so that he will not sin against God or against his master. So Joseph does the right thing, and it gets him into trouble. Don't you hate it when that happens? Don't you hate it when you do the right thing and you get into trouble anyway? When I was in elementary school, how many of you have ever got a SWAT? Anybody get a SWAT in school? Oh, my goodness. What a rotten group of people you are. I thought I was the only. Oh, my goodness. What a bunch of terrible children you were. 
just like me. Um, but uh, so I was, I was in first grade, and uh, I'm mess, uh, I'm, I was trying to get the, go- the boys who were in the bathroom messing around. I was not messing around. I was trying to get them out of the bathroom. They were in the bathroom swinging from the doors and stuff and flushing the toilets. I'm like, come on, guys, we got to go. We got to go. And this is the truth, I, I promise you. I, I was not messing around. I was trying to get them out saying, come on, go. Wrong place, wrong time. Trying to do the right thing. Teacher walks in and says, come with me to the five of us. And we go out. We stand outside the door. We're first graders. First graders. She said, wait right here while I go, to go get a witness. And I thought to myself, what do you need a witness for? <laughs> witness for what? And then she walked out with the paddle. Now, they don't do that in school anymore. It's a shame. <laughs> I didn't say it. But uh, the last thing I remember through tear-stained eyes was seeing this. And that, and that was it. But I got in trouble for doing the right thing. I was trying to do the right thing, and I got in trouble. And I hate it when that happens, and that's what happened to Joseph, only on a much grander scale. All right, look at verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Remember, there's no one else in the house except her and Joseph. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So even though Joseph was thrown into prison, God was still with him. God never abandoned him or left him. God was still with Joseph. Let's keep going in chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Now, the cupbearer's job was to taste the food and to drink the wine, uh, uh, sip the wine of the pharaoh. uh, So that if somebody was trying to poison the pharaoh, uh, the cupbearer would die. I don't know how you get this job (laughs) or what it pays, but it had better have a really, really good Uh, compensation plan uh, because the retirement plan you never know if you're ever going to use it so verse 2 Pharaoh was angry with his two officials the chief cupbearer and the chief baker we're not told what they did but they messed up and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And so the cupbearer tells his dream to Joseph. 
And it's a, Joseph gives him a favorable interpretation of his dream that the cupbearer is going to be restored to his spot, his restored to his place, that he is not going to be in prison much longer. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And what happens then is that Joseph tells him, uh, look at uh, verse uh, 14. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. So that's the last thing that Joseph says to the cupbearer is remember me when you're restored to your spot so that I can get out of prison. And then the baker tells his dream to Joseph. And his dream does not have a favorable interpretation. In fact, his dream uh, means that he's going to be hung uh, off of a gallows. Now, in those days, it could be either hanging from a rope or it could be impaled on a pole. Uh, the word is kind of ambiguous in the Hebrew, but in other words, the baker's going to die. And his, like I said, his interpretation was not as favorable. And so he doesn't tell him, remember me when you get out of prison. <laughs> Don't remember me at all. So, uh, and sure enough, exactly, that's exactly what happens. The cupbearer is restored to his place, and the baker is hung and killed. It brings us to chapter 40, uh, uh, verse, 40 uh, verse 23 of chapter 40. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So Joseph has now been betrayed. He's been lied about, and he has been thrown in prison, and now he's been forgotten. Completely forgotten, left to rot in prison. Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, Pharaoh has two dreams, and these dreams, uh, he has no one to interpret them. The first dream that he has uh, is of seven fat, uh, healthy cows uh, and seven thin, sickly cows, and the seven thin, sickly cows eat the seven fat, healthy cows. I know, right? <laughs> and then he has another dream. He has another dream of seven healthy heads of grain that are eaten by seven thin heads of grain. And Pharaoh's disturbed. And he doesn't know what this dream means. It's been two years since Joseph explained the dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. And what happens? The cupbearer all of a sudden remembers Joseph says, I know a guy who can interpret these dreams. And Joseph comes and interprets the dreams. And what he tells Pharaoh is that there's seven years of plenty coming, seven years of blessing, as well as seven years of famine that are going to follow the seven years of blessing. And he tells the Pharaoh, what you need to do is you need to put someone in charge who will take care of this situation. And he puts Joseph in charge. In fact, Joseph is made second in command over Egypt. So he goes from Potiphar's house. Well, he goes from Canaan to Potiphar's house, to prison, to now he is second in charge over all of Egypt. And sure enough, what happens, that seven years of plenty comes and Joseph stores up lots and lots of grain. And then the seven years of famine hits. And it not, doesn't just hit Egypt, it hits Canaan as well, where Joseph's family still lives. And his father Jacob still believes that he's dead. And what happens next in chapters uh, 42 and 43 is that Joseph's brothers come to see him in Egypt, and they buy grain from him. Now, Joseph could have been holding a grudge. Uh, he could have had his brothers put to death. Uh, he could have made up stories about them. Uh, he could have held on to bitterness and resentment, but he didn't. Instead, he gave grain to his brothers, and then he told them to bring his father to him, and, Joseph, and Jacob came. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Do you remember a story from last week? 
the dreams that Joseph had about his brothers and his father and his mother coming and bowing down before him, sure enough, the dream came true and his brothers bowed down before him. As we get to chapter, I want to fast forward over to chapter 50 and read a few verses from there. So flip over to chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is after Jacob has died, back in Canaan, he said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. They bowed down to him one more time. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You know what that's called? Perspective. Perspective. See, Joseph, like I said, could have been very bitter. He could have held a grudge could have put his brothers to death. I mean, he was second in command. He could have done whatever he wanted. These guys are doing this, that, and the other thing, and they deserve to die. Joseph could have had him thrown into prison. I'm going to pay you back for everything you ever did to me. But no, he forgave instead because he believed that God was up to something the entire time. So Joseph believed that God was up to something good. And my challenge for you today is that as you are facing difficult situations and difficult circumstances, as you are going through tough times and hard times, whether they be physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever difficulty you're facing, whether you're a teenager or an elderberry or anywhere in between, whatever difficulty you may be facing, I encourage you, I challenge you to believe that God is up to something good. And the reason that I know that God is up to something good is because God is good. In Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said this, Why do you call me good? Someone came up to him and called him a good teacher. He says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. My friends, God really is good all the time. And even when we don't believe it and even when we don't see it, we have to remind ourselves of God's goodness. So that when you, are, uh, when you are facing that illness, when you have that diagnosis of, of cancer, when you have that diagnosis of another illness or disease, or when your body is breaking down and falling apart, when you feel like you're just uh, debilitated, and it's hard to see that God is good, don't give up on God. Believe that God is up to something good. When you hear about that, those layoffs coming at work, and you're worried about your financial future, don't give up on God. Believe that God is up to something good. When your loved one passes away, whether it's a parent or a sibling, a friend, a child, and it's so hard to see God's goodness, and it's so hard to believe that God is up to something good, believe that God is up to something good. Don't give up on Him. When your friends forsake you, when your family abandons you, when your life is falling apart relationally, and it's so hard to see God's goodness, don't give up on God. 
believe that God is up to something good because he is able to take all of the situations, negative situations in our lives. He can take those bad days and he can turn them around and make them good. He can take those bad relationships and turn them around and make them good. He can take those, even the illnesses and the sicknesses and the diseases and he can turn them around and bring good out of it because God is good. And we have to believe that God is up to something Good. So whatever you are going through, whatever you are going through, believe that God is up to something good. Even when it's hard to see his goodness. I think about one of the stories we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks about how Jesus went to the cross for our sins and it seems like that would be the ultimate bad that the Son of God dying on a cross would be the ultimate bad and yet it is for the ultimate good that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will believe in Him, and if you will repent from your sins and confess your faith and get baptized, God will wash away your sins and He will bring the ultimate good out of what is seemingly the ultimate bad of His Son dying. It's called perspective. And sometimes it's hard to have that perspective. Sometimes it's hard to remember that Jesus is good and that God is good and that God is up to something good. But believe me, my friends, He is. And he can take that bad situation, that bad circumstance you're facing, and he can turn it around for good, just like he did for Joseph. And he may bring something out of it that you don't even expect. When Joseph was sitting in that cistern, and when he was rotting in prison, I highly doubt that he was thinking, you know what, I, I think I'm going to save a bunch of lives through this. But what his brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. And God brought good out of it. And so I'm not telling you today that God is going to make everything better tomorrow. I'm not telling you today that God is going to make everything better next week or next month or next year. But I know this. My God is able to make good things come out of bad situations and circumstances. Will you believe? Will you put your hope? Will you put your trust? Will you put your faith in the God who is not only good, but who can bring good out of bad circumstances. Will you believe, will you remain suspicious that God is up to something good? Because when you do, you will discover that he can turn your situation and circumstance around and he can use your story for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that for the story of Joseph and how you were able to turn his situation and circumstances around. That, Lord, he was lied about. He was thrown in prison. He was forgotten and forsaken and abandoned, but you never left him. Instead, you were with him the whole time. Remind us that you are with us no matter what we're going through, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we will face, that we can be confident that you are up to something good. So I pray for my friends here today and ask that for those who hear this sermon, for those who hear this message, that you would remind us that you are up to something good. That we can be confident in you, God, in your goodness and in your grace and in your mercy and in your love. That though we are unworthy, Lord, you forgive us anyway. And though that we are unlovable, you love us anyway. Thank you, Father God, for Jesus, our Savior. 
And thank you for your word that teaches us how to look more like him. So we pray this week that you would use our stories for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.